0: Episode 146, Come Sail Away. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a November 16, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Museum of History. In this series, we talk to museum experts to get the story behind the story about artifacts related to Kansas history. During World War I, soldiers stood knee-deep in mud on French battlefields. So why did one Kansas serviceman find himself patrolling the coast of California? Join Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine a World War I naval uniform worn by a man from Effingham, Kansas. Did this man defend America from a sinister plot between Germany and Mexico? Then we go behind the scenes with two historical society interns that were asked to do the unthinkable. Make classroom learning more fun by adding museum stuff. Find out how these budding scholars took to the challenge. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a small town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the Vietnam Memorial. Always an advocate for art and the American soldier, what would White have thought of this once controversial monument? But first, come sail away. Good morning, Michaela. Hello, Mr. Today we are discussing a navy uniform worn by a Kansas man during World War I. Though the Great War primarily took place half a world away in uh, Europe and Asia, mm-hmm. this World War I soldier actually wore this uniform while patrolling the west coast of the United States.
1: He did. A little,
2: a
0: little odd. Yeah. The the uniform was worn by Joe Price. What do you know about Joe?
1: Right, Joe Price was a young man from Effingham, Kansas. He was born in 1897.
0: Effingham, Kansas—that's kind of northeast Kansas. Yeah,
1: and it appears that he volunteered to join the Navy. He enlisted in 1918 when he was 21 years old, and he served for one year and one month and was honorably discharged.
0: For one year and one month.
1: One year. And and he was one honorably
0: discharged. Why? Because the war had ended.
1: Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And really, you know, what's a Kansas guy going to do in the Navy after the war ends?
0: It's true. World War I did not have the massive naval battles like World War II. You know, mm-hmm. you think of the Pacific Theater during World War II, huge navies clashing with each other. World War I, really not that much happened as far as battles. There was, right. there was, some, there was some activity.
1: Right, especially and, in the Pacific, of all places. And, <laughs> not and, a lot of battles there right, during World War I. And
0: control of the water, it was important, right. more because of the trade routes. In fact... The sinking of the Lusitania uh, impacted how Americans viewed the war. What happened to the Lusitania?
1: The Lusitania was a British ocean liner that the Germans sank with a torpedo in 1915. Um, Earlier in the war, Germany had really limited its submarine attacks to military ships and the occasional merchant ships. So they were focusing on the people they were fighting against, mm-hmm. the soldiers, the sailors. Um, but in 1915, the Germans decided that anything sailing in the Atlantic was a viable target. Right. They could hit anything, mainly because even if, you know, it was an ocean liner, it could be transporting men or goods to the Allies in Europe.
0: Which it was, which the U.S. was sending stuff to, to the Allies in Europe.
1: Right. But unfortunately, also aboard that ship were a bunch of innocent civilians and, um, including women and children. So the sinking of the Lusitania changed public opinion in America because so many innocent lives were lost. Um, of the nearly 2,000 people on board, only 764 survived. And moreover, oh, yeah, many of those who died were Americans, and the United States hadn't declared war on anyone at right, that Right, so
0: they were losing civilians to, to German U-boat right. warfare. As if the sinking of the Lusitania wasn't bad enough, the Germans went even further. In January 1917, a coded German message to Mexico led to American involvement in World War I and caused Joe Mm -hmm. to patrol the West Coast. What What were the Germans attempting to accomplish with this coded message, and how did it later affect Joe?
1: Well, the message sent by the Germans to Mexico that you're referring to is the now infamous Zimmerman telegram, which no relation. Right, you have not the same related. last name. Yeah, I am not related to the Zimmerman telegram guy. Um, Germany feared the United States entering the war in Europe because our country had a lot of men and a lot of arms, and that could easily turn, you know, the war towards the Allied side. Uh-huh. Um, the telegram instructed the German ambassador in Mexico to approach the Mexican government about a possible military alliance if it appeared that the U.S. was preparing to enter the war. And the Germans thought that by giving the Americans a fight on their own continent, they could avoid having to fight U.S. soldiers. Right. In Tie Europe.
0: up in a conflict here in North America.
1: Right. Um, So between unrestricted submarine warfare that was killing innocent Americans at sea and Germany basically knocking on the back door, the U.S. felt it had to declare war at that point. They'd had it. They'd had it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm -hmm. Well, at this point, the largest effect the telegram had on Joe was that the U.S. was officially at war and the country needed her men to sign up for the fight. And Joe did that and was assigned to the USS Vicksburg.
0: But so, but I mean, it kind of creates a situation where there is a threat now, not just in Europe, but there's a threat to America right here, a potential threat, Mm -hmm. be it Mexico. There seems to be some, there appears to be some collusion between Mexico and Germany. Right.
1: There was always a little tension between the United States and Mexico. And the United States had just gone through that whole Pancho Villa, you know, hunt down. So it was was always kind of a tenuous relationship anyway. But Mexico had a lot to lose if they turned against the United States. Sure, sure.
0: But it creates a threat to the U.S. They dispatch. The the USS Vicksburg with mm-hmm. Joe on it.
1: Well, Joe wasn't on at the beginning. He was on it later, but he was on the Vicksburg.
0: Joe was assigned to the Vicksburg. Did this this particular ship, did it see any action? Did it it see any action on the West Coast?
1: (laughs) Well, for the most part, the U.S.'s Vicksburg had a quiet time during World War I. Um, The ship was assigned to patrol the West Coast of the U.S. just to make sure that Germany and Mexico weren't cooking something up. It was a little suspicious. Um, In 1918, the Vicksburg did intercept a schooner carrying a group of Germans as that left Viejo Bay, Mexico. Um, On board that schooner, they found five Germans, eight Mexicans, and an American spy, as well as arms, ammunition, and a German flag. Um, And that was pretty much... The, the biggest that was the height <laughs> of the
0: Vicksburg
2: yeah. activities during yeah. World War One. Well,
1: the ship did continue to patrol the West Coast until October of 1919, and they did escort American ships that were on their way to Russia as part of the Allied intervention in the Russian Civil War. Oh, uh, and so they they were kind of they were responsible for making sure that those ships got there safely. And Joe was actually aboard the Vicksburg when it was escorting ships to Russia. And there's really um, in our archives there's a picture of. Um, of the crew on the ship off the coast of uh, the coast of Alaska on, their, oh, wow. on one of their trips. So.
0: so can you tell us a little bit about this uniform in particular? Like, what does it look like? And is it a formal uniform, or is it something that's just worn while you're swabbing the deck?
1: Well, I think probably this uniform is the one that when you say Navy sailor that most people think of. You know, it's got the square collar in the back. It's made of... What would probably be the most itchy, uncomfortable wool (laughs) to man, yeah. And it's got, you know, the kind of bell-bottom legs that people associate with sailing uniforms. Um, This uniform would be the enlisted man's dress blue. So he would have worn this while performing drills or receiving instructions on land or on the ship and also in parades, things like that.
0: All right, now we're going to play a little... um Navy history game, well, naval history quiz. Okay. Um, since the sinking of a ship tends to uh, lead to war, it's often mm-hmm. an act of war. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the Lusitania right. uh, led to an act of war. I think we should explore this a little bit more. So I'm going to give you the name of a ship. And, Nikayla, I want you to tell me if its sinking resulted in war. Okay. Okay. So we're going to start out with the the USS Maine, a U.S. battleship sunk in Havana Bay, Cuba in 1898.
1: That one did lead to war. It was a contributing factor in the Spanish-American War.
0: Right. It was a big deal when sinking it. Remember the Maine. Right. Big deal. And some question whether it uh, uh, was an act of, uh, a malicious act of Mm -hmm. of a belligerent government or if... It was an accident, or if it was intentionally done to lead us to war,
1: mm-hmm. which some said about the German telegram, uh, the Zimmerman mm-hmm. telegram, too. If it was, you know, fabricated by the British, right? To did get the, the British the just make thing.
0: it up to get us yeah. paranoid enough to be involved? Yeah. So then we have the ROKS Chionin, which is a South Korean naval ship that was sunk not long ago in 2010.
1: Well, since no one is currently at war with South Korea, I'm going to go. Oh, with the
0: U.S. is that, well.
1: South Korea. Uh, I'm going to go with no on this one. Unless, I mean, because that supposedly was North Korea that did that. Uh, So unless South Korea goes to war with North Korea soon and historians later cite it as a precipitating factor, I'm going to go with no right So we
0: may be in the middle of something here. But, (laughs) um, yeah, it's kind of interesting when that ship sank, uh, people predicted that it would be an act of war, that it would lead to war. Okay, finally, the last ship is the Dawn Treader, a Narnian <laughs> ship built by King Caspian the Tenth. Well,
1: <laughs> I don't think it ever sank, but I'm sure if it did, it would probably cause some huge problems in Narnia.
0: Right? I know you might have like Mer people <laughs> fighting. Uh... Octopus people, I don't know. But
1: I'm sure it would make a stunning cinemagraphic Well, well to
0: my knowledge, the Don Treader nd did not sink. Yeah. Um it could still be afloat today. Yeah, because I, I didn't
1: it just kind of he? It sailed off, you know, kind of into the sunset type thing.
0: I don't know. I never really read that, that particular <laughs> book. Okay. All right, Nikaya. Well, thanks for telling us about uh, Joe Price and his naval uniform.
1: You bet. The subject of today's Kansas Quiz is Veterans Day. The holiday we know as Veterans Day began as Armistice Day since it marked the day the Armistice was signed that ended World War I. America celebrated its first Armistice Day on November 11, 1919 to remember those who fought in the Great War. Thirty-three years later, President Dwight Eisenhower signed a bill into law that changed the holiday's name to Veterans Day. A Kansas community led the campaign to establish this holiday. Do you know which town it was? I'll be back in a moment with the answer. In
3: 2007,
0: the Kansas Historical Society began publishing Read Kansas cards. Intended for the classroom, these cards address Kansas history with original documents and artifacts from the museum's collection. Though it sounds easy, writing for kids can be challenging. Today, we go behind the scenes with education interns Sarah Bell and Dave Beals to get the scoop on the maddening combination of history and kids. Sarah, Dave, good morning. Good morning. Sarah, you and Dave were assigned to develop Read Kansas cards, how is a Read Kansas card different from your average museum brochure?
4: Well, unlike a brochure that provides general information to um, all the visitors, a Read Kansas card is a curriculum supplement for teachers designed specifically for a certain grade level.
0: So it's meant for the classroom. Yes. It's not It's not just address and hours of operations. Exactly. It's got a point to it.
4: Yep. Often uh, the card addresses a certain topic that the teacher will be teaching her students a a standard that will be tested and so it it uses some information uh, for the teacher. Uh,
0: What does the what does the card can you talk about like what it actually looks like I mean we call it a card but it's like an eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper right?
4: It is yep it has a lesson plan for the teacher as well as activity pages for the students uh, possibly something for them to read as well as uh, some kind of activity to follow up on afterwards.
0: Nice. Dave, the cards are designed to address Kansas education standards, right? Why would a museum be concerned with education standards? Because those are for schools. We're we're a museum. We don't we don't we don't teach. Well
2: the primary objective of public schools now is to kind of prepare their students for these standardized tests. Mm-hmm. So in order for a teacher to be able to justify buying a curriculum piece, like the Read Kansas cards, or even take a field trip to a museum. They have to be able to justify to the district why or how it contributes to the student's understanding of state Mm -hmm. standards. And it also allows us to kind of be sure that what we're teaching in these curriculum pieces or these Read Kansas cards is kind of in line with what the students are already learning in school.
0: Sarah, unfortunately, you were tasked with developing a Read Kansas card that addressed a topic that was both boring and confusing. (laughs) Um, that's my opinion, of course, not yours. Course. Um, what was the topic, and how did you how did you address it?
4: Well, my topic was juvenile and adult criminal justice systems. <laughs> Definitely not the most thrilling of topics. You are right.
0: Right, who's this intended for?
4: And this is intended for seventh grade students.
0: So they're supposed to learn about juvenile and adult and adult.
4: Yes, they. um okay. The standard is, and this is something they are tested on, which is why it is important is to compare the, the two systems and, and the differences and similarities between them. And I had to do my own bit of research because I didn't really know that much about it in the first place, but what I, how I approached it was to use some sort of primary sources really as the main focus. And I ended up crafting uh, two newspaper articles dealing with stories that was a juvenile and an adult both committing a crime with the purpose of the students reading these and then extracting information on their own for what the differences and similarities are. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I had to create them is because we did not want to use real newspaper articles um, for privacy sake.
0: Right, but you came across, I mean, it's not like there's a lack of newspaper articles about juvenile and adult criminals.
4: Plenty of them out there. And, um, but along with those articles, we also used a picture of a jail, a wooden jail from the 1860s in Burlingame, uh, just as kind of a tie-in to how the justice system has changed and developed over the years in Kansas. And also a picture of these bank robbers, Henry Brown and his gang, who were Mm -hmm. unsuccessful in the 1880s. And so it also it kind of gives some some fun picture to look at, but uh, also just tying that in uh, to a bigger picture of right. the justice system. So
0: the the jail is actually from our collection. It is. So you look at a jail from Burlingame, Kansas, from you know when like sort of rough and tough early Kansas That's when right. law was a little shaky back then.
2: That's
4: right. Um, mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, but you can actually you can see it on the kids students can see it on the Reed Kansas card, and they mm-hmm. can actually come out here and see the real thing. Exactly. And then the John or the Henry Brown, mm-hmm. he was a sort of lawman turned uh, cr- yeah, criminal. He right. was a real guy, and it happened in a Kansas cattle town.
4: That's right, and I believe his is it his rifle or his, his rifle
0: that he used is
4: on display. Yeah,
0: uh, Dave, you had you were tasked to develop a lesson about probably the most uh, famous image in Kansas history, the tragic prelude. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about your topic, and how did you, uh, how did you sell it? How did you, how did you make it interesting to kids? Well,
2: for those who don't know, the tragic prelude, I think, is objectively the most awesome painting in the world. It's the uh, mural at the Kansas State Capitol of John Brown holding the Bible and the rifle, and he's about
0: nine feet tall. Right. There's and so, tornadoes in the background, tornadoes and there's fire. people dying at yeah. his feet, and other people, like, yeah. coming to blows in front of him. It's, it's really extremely powerful. extremely awesome, yeah. yeah.
2: And so the goal there was to use this mural to show students that this is kind of a mural as a secondary source. And so the students are supposed to analyze this mural, and then kind of through the mural figure out what John Stuart Curry, the artist, was trying to say about John Brown. Uh-huh. And then after they look at that, we made six Reed Kansas cards that all have a primary source about John Brown. Mm-hmm. And the students get to look at each one of those. And then once they've looked at the primary sources, they then get to create their own drawing of John Brown based off of kind of their opinions and perspectives they gained from the primary sources.
0: And uh, the tragic prelude, tragic prelude was the was the featured object, and you can actually go see it, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, it is still on display, even though they're doing a bunch of renovations on the Capitol. It is still
0: in full glory. Right, <laughs> but, and it's one of, uh, it's one of several uh, murals by the same artist that are really well-known, really powerful images. Yeah, he
2: was supposed to, I believe, originally commissioned to do eight, but he only completed three before he quit in uh, 1941. Or he got fired. Yeah, well, he kind of <laughs> yeah. walked out and made some controversy,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, for the both of you, um, have have you guys had the opportunity to see your final product? Like, I know you, you sort of develop prototypes of your cards, and then they go through, there's an actual graphic designer mm-hmm. that does some mucking with them.
4: There is. Um, actually, just today, I received the printed version of what I had submitted to Mary Madden, and so it's still in the process of being proofed and edited, but it's neat to see because you can tell what the final product will be, what will look like, and um, so that's that's exciting.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the last I saw of mine, it was kind of the very tacky Word document with <laughs> no style that I had done, and then we turned it into the graphic designer, and now it looks
0: very awesome and mm-hmm. fresh. Nice. Alright guys, well thanks for telling me about the uh Reed Kansas cards. If
3: you ever love somebody put your hands up, if you somebody, hands up. Like Bernie, wish you could give
1: them everything. I'm Michaela Zimmerman and the answer to today's Kansas quiz is Emporia. In 1953, Alvin King, the father of a World War II veteran and resident of Emporia, began a campaign to make Armistice Day a holiday to honor veterans of all wars. Most of the residents of Emporia, including local Congressman Ed Rees, agreed. Rees took the idea all the way to Capitol Hill, where, in 1954, Congress passed a bill making November 11th a day to remember all the men and women who have served their country in military conflict. To them, we say thank you and welcome home.
0: And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Nakela Zimmerman. Hello. And Museum Director Bob Keckisen. Hi. Today we connect William Allen White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the Vietnam Wall, a sleek black marble war memorial on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Bob, you want to give us a little background on the Vietnam Wall?
3: Sure. Well, this is uh, a little different than a lot of the memorial sculptures and memorials that you'll see in Washington, D.C. It's, it's very minimalist and it's designed to be symbolically powerful. It's really you know like no other war memorial, I think, anywhere in the country, although there are now some that are imitating it. Mm-hmm. But it's located near the Lincoln Memorial on the National Mall and it's comprised of two sunken marble walls that adjoin at an angle. and They kind of angle up from the outsides to where they join in the middle, mm-hmm. so that you've just got a, f- a few names at the beginning, and as the U.S. involvement in Vietnam grew, the wall grows and the number of names involved right. grow, and then it diminishes as you go. So you kind of you right. you
0: actually submerge as you're yeah. going through it until you get to yeah. the to the angle, and then you turn the other direction okay. as the war ends. The names yeah. sort of fade out. Fade out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
3: it's very very powerful. Well, <clears throat> it was quarried in uh, India, and this was. Stone was particularly picked because of its re- reflective quality, and as we mentioned, there are names of all the soldiers and sailors and marines who were killed or went missing in Vietnam. And the neat thing about that stone is because it's got that reflective quality. As you're looking at the names, you see your image reflected behind them, mm-hmm. which is you know very you know powerful in terms of you know I, I think uh, not only pulling you into <clears throat> the memorial itself but really making you realize right. that these are people just like you and they had right. lives like you and, and i think one of the really interesting things it was designed by a 21 year old and 21 that's a 21-year-old Chinese-American, uh, Maya Lin. She designed it in 1981. You know, now they tend to go for the big names. You know, you, get mm-hmm. the, you want the architects. You want Frank Geary or somebody who's really mm-hmm. – so the fact that they gave it to this 21-year-old Chinese-American I think is is uh, another really interesting part. And she she designed it to really represent an open wound. Mm-hmm. symbolizing the gravity of the loss and the impact on the country. And I'd never really seen an aerial view of it mm-hmm. until Nikayla mentioned that right before our, our recording session today. And uh, we were looking at it, and it really does, from if you look at an aerial view of this, it really does look like an open wound on mm-hmm. the landscape.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Because it's so different than other memorials, it's tended to impact the public differently than other memorials. Mm-hmm. And people now... You know, have really taken to it. It was really controversial when it started. People was like, well, you know, it didn't have any representative figures, and it wasn't, you know, uh, this sort of gla- you know vast, glorious monument. Uh, now, I think it's become so accepted, it's so embedded in the American psyche that visitors commonly leave behind mementos
0: mm-hmm. and as I if think, to add to it.
3: And it is a very personalized memorial in that the names are there. You don't see that in other memorials yeah. either. You don't go to the World War II or World War One memorial. Now, on the local level, you will. You'll see in smaller towns, you'll see our World War I veterans mm-hmm. and they'll list the names. So, this is the first national monument that listed names. Yeah.
0: Fascinating. All right. Thanks, Bob. Uh, now to the game. As a contestant, Bob, you will hear two chains of connection between William Allen White and the Vietnam War and the Vietnam Wall. Okay. Uh, you must pick the true six degrees of William Allen White from the false. Nikayla, you want to go first?
1: Sure. Um, So the Vietnam War Memorial Wall is located on the Mall in Washington, D.C., and as we mentioned, one arm of the wall points to the Washington Monument while the other points to the Lincoln Memorial. Well, the statue of Abraham Lincoln that is found in the Lincoln Memorial was sculpted by Daniel Chester French. French was a famous sculptor known mainly for his monuments. However, in 1917, French designed the Pulitzer Prize gold medal that is presented to the winners of that award. And as we know, William Allen White won a Pulitzer Prize Uh, in 1923 for an editorial he wrote entitled To an Anxious Friend.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Not quite as exciting as mine. (laughs) Uh, Maya Lin's design angered many Vietnam War Memorial supporters. There was a lot of people that wanted this memorial, but once they saw her design, which was one from a blind competition, um, they did not like it. Among them was H. Ross Perot, a famous Texas millionaire that eventually ran for president. Uh, Perot was a naval vet himself. But he had this theory. He really believed that the U.S. government was kind of hiding the fact that there was thousands of U.S. soldiers still in Vietnam, that, that uh, they were covering it up. So in 1979, Perot, who is rich, right, yeah. he personally funded a military expedition to Vietnam to extract— to extract one known POW. He was trying to make a point. Mm -hmm. Um, So he paid for this. Mercenary kind of stuff. So uh, what's interesting, though, is the effort was led by a retired U.S. Army Special Forces Colonel, Arthur Bull Simmons. Here's where he gets good.
1: Oh, boy.
0: Born in Missouri, Simmons actually spent his high school years, just four years, in Emporia, Kansas. Where he, had, where he may have befind, befriended a classmate, William Lindsay White.
3: I, I, I like the Ross Perot story. That that's definitely it's sounds like something he would do. Very creative. Very creative. Yeah. But uh, I think the, the Daniel Chester French um, sounds like the more plausible, boring but plausible <laughs> yeah. connection. So I'm going to go with Nicholas scenario. That's,
0: that would be correct.
1: Yeah. So what you're nice telling job. me is I need to spice these up in the future. I need to make him lies essentially
0: <laughs> uh, i don't know if you want to go to that but uh you got to do what you got to do okay. work a strip club in there or something. yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right nikayla would you like to issue the challenge for our next episode
1: you bet next week we connect william allen white to muammar gaddafi the overthrown dictator of libya and lover of condoleezza rice
0: yes yeah, so come back in two weeks when we connect white to the mad dog of the middle east <laughs> known to sport armani suits with gold lame togas did Gaddafi steal his fashion sense from William Allen White? I don't know. We'll come back in two weeks and find <laughs> out. Libya. I know where Libya is. sail away. away. <laughs> come sail, away. Come sail away with me. That concludes episode 146, Come Sail Away. If you would like to see images of the naval uniform that saved the West Coast, go to our website. KSHS.org. Let us hear from you. Post a message on the Kansas Museum of History's Facebook page or send an email to podcasts at KSHS.org. That's podcasts with an S. Come back in two weeks when museum specialist Donna Ray Pearson and I examine a set of white gloves worn by an african-american funeral home director in wichita kansas learn how one african-american woman made an incredible transition from beautician to undertaker this podcast is a production of the kansas museum of history real people real stories